This morning we're continuing with our, our great turnarounds uh, series that we began last Sunday, and I'd like to read from Ruth chapter 1, uh, verses 11 through 18. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would they wait until, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Then we read these amazing words from Ruth to Naomi. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we have to dive into your word and to look at it from another angle, from another lens. We thank you for the way that you have used these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, to teach us lessons about your commitment to us and about the kind of commitment we can have to each other and how we can impact the world around us. We pray that you will continue to stretch our faith, grow our faith, turn it into action in the way that we live, in the way that we serve other people, and in the way that we bring praise and honor and glory to our God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have given to us. There's so much that we think about in those moments during uh, the quiet times of communion when we think that you turned that cross, that implement of of death and destruction and humiliation, into an altar where God is worshipped and people are blessed. You do amazing things. And so we ask that you will do amazing things again this morning as we are here and through our lives as we walk out into the world when this hour is over. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have invited uh, my friend Gail Dardis to join me this morning. We're going to do something a little different this morning. Would you welcome Gail? It's on. It's on. on. So um, this morning, our our topic comes from Ruth chapter 1, part of this great turnaround series. And uh, last week, we looked at God and the recovering murderer. Today, we're going to look at God and a recovering widow Because one of the things that hit me in reading through the story of Ruth, which is my favorite Old Testament book, is the two primary characters in the story of Ruth are Naomi and Ruth, who are both widows. How about that? Uh, Some people think that we forget about those who go through loss and go through suffering, but here's an entire book of the Bible, and the two main characters are widows, which tells us that there's something God wants us to see. So I thought I'd get outside of my, my own experience and lean on Gail's experience a little bit as she has uh, agreed to let me interview her a little bit about how we look at Ruth chapter 1 and the story of Ruth having lost a spouse. So Gail, thank you so much for being willing to do this. Let me just uh, go back a little bit. 
George was your husband and uh, had the honor of officiating at George's memorial a few years ago. You and George were married for how many years? We were married for 49 and a half years. And how long since George passed from this life? The Lord took him home five and a half years ago. I, I will never forget George's story, because George is one of those guys who uh, did not believe in God, did not believe in Jesus. But as he was dying, in his last conversation with Gail, she asked one more time. Three nights before he died, I said to him, your time's getting near, and uh, God knows all the reasons that you haven't invited him in. And this has been a tough life, and there's something beautiful waiting for you. And I hope tonight will be the night you invite Jesus in. And he closed his eyes, and I wanted to smack him. <laughs> I thought he'd gone back to sleep. And a few minutes later, he awakened like somebody had given him a bolt. And I looked at him, and I said, have you invited Jesus into your heart? And he looked at me as so intensely, and he said, Yes, and he never spoke to me again after that. It was an incredible gift. So, Gail, it's interesting when we look back at Naomi in the book of Ruth that she went through a, a, a wide range of emotions and feelings that all get articulated in the verses and chapters of this little book after her husband died. Now, some of these include a sense of abandonment by God. She actually says in the passage we just read, the Lord's hand has turned against me. And it's interesting, she's blaming God, in other words. And I find it wonderful that the Bible leaves that in. It doesn't whitewash it. Here's a person going through a profound sense of loss and thinks that God has done this to harm her. She experienced, uh, she was expecting rejection. She says to Ruth, why would you come with me? Why don't you go back with your other sister-in-law, go back to the Moabites and to their gods? And she's also experiencing profound bitterness. She says, it is more bitter for me than for you. Later on in the same chapter, when she comes back to Bethlehem and sees some of her old friends, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord Almighty has made my life bitter. Very bitter, she says. So, here's my question. Did you experience a wide range of emotions after George passed. What, what, what phases can you remember that you would be willing to share with us? It was like, it was like a, getting a drink out of a fire hose. The emotions were widespread and it was a roller coaster. And naturally I was heartbroken, I was sad. And there comes a relief that's very close in grief. And it's hard to kind of distinguish between the two. Um, I was grateful. Uh, we had had many hours to talk and to share what life might be like for me after he was gone. Um, we talked about our kids. We talked about everything. Car repairs, how to run the checkbook, the whole thing. Um, I felt alone at times, even though I knew God was with me. I was just having trouble with it, connecting. I felt um, lonely, purposeless, numb. Uh, I was distracted. I'd go to do my quiet time in the morning. I couldn't journal. I'd read something in the Bible. I couldn't remember what I read. I'd think, what the heck is going on, you know? Um, I was discontented. Uh, I felt cheated because we didn't get to finish our bucket list together. Um, 
I was overwhelmed. You know, there were two of us sharing our life's responsibilities, and all of a sudden they were all on me. And some of them I was very unfamiliar with, and I was very fearful. Um, honestly, I felt crazy sometimes. And um, I felt nothing felt normal, and I, I actually began to fear that I had lost my faith. So given all of that, which is very real, and you make you so very vulnerable in telling us that, here's the part we wanted to get to. Where has God met you on this part of the journey? Wow. <laughs> That's a biggie. Um, God's met me through every emotion, um, through every thought, through every challenge. Uh, there were days all I could do was just surrender and just say, I can't do this. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to handle this. And sometimes circumstances, as you all know, don't change when you first pray. But I would get a sense of peace, and I knew that I was under his wing. I knew I was under his protection, even though I didn't feel it. Um, he does really work at times when you don't see or feel it, but you have to believe he hasn't left you. I, unlike Ruth, I didn't feel abandoned. Mm. Um, and um, I, I think that that was so wonderful. And then he began to work day by day through my children, my family, friends, and in so many ways, a huge part has been through my North River Church family. Um, his provision... I didn't know how I was going to get through this without George. Uh, four years into my widowhood, I had emergency surgery and lost 18 inches of my bowel. Then three months later, I was diagnosed with cancer. And this past year, I had three months of chemo and uh, a whole month of radiation. And let me tell you what the provision was. My prayer warriors and my prayer partners in this church were faithful, faithful, faithful. Um, I had meals, I had calls, I had cards that would come on days that had a message that was just like, whoa, you know, they were divinely sent. Um, I had house repairs done through people in this church. At Christmas, my Wednesday night Bible study came and couldn't even come in the house because of COVID. Uh, they were caroling, and they brought me a basket full, a huge basket full of thoughtful and loving gifts. Uh, when I was going through chemo, I had 12, I had three months and 12 treatments, and I had 22 volunteers from this church to back me up. Uh, when I lost all my hair, which I'm glad I have it back now, um, I had hats made for me. Um, when I felt that I'd lost my faith, I think the greatest thing was that I had encouragement, love, I had patience and kindness for people to keep encouraging me, that I hadn't lost my faith. I was just going through grief. Awesome. Awesome. If there's one lesson that stands out that you would want to end with to just say, this is what I want, would want you to know about what God has done for me, what, what would that be? What's the dominant thing on your mind? Well, kind of like Ruth, I mean, I hadn't left Bethlehem and gone to Wamohab, but maybe in a spiritual sense I had. And I think what I love the most is how God, as he used Ruth, he used this church and my friends and family to carry me through. Because 
I was kind of an Elijah experience. I don't know if you know the story, but he was a prophet that they were trying to kill. And not only was he discouraged, he cried out he wanted to die. And there were days I wasn't so sure I wasn't in the grave with George. Um, and I think for me, it's the message when God sent the angel to Elijah and he said, arise, get up, and eat. And you know, I love anybody who feeds me. <laughs> but to be, sped, to be fed spiritually is an amazing experience. And I don't think that God cared how many times I was in a flood of tears. You know, he says he keeps your tears in a bottle. I thought he was getting ready to do another ocean for me. It was terrible. It didn't matter how many times I fell down, how many times I felt despairing and lost, frustrated, discontented, all that list of feelings. What mattered was that I kept getting up in his power and his love and his strength. And some days I could not believe I'd get up and I could function. And it was an amazing gift and I felt God's love. I knew God's love at a deeper and more profound level than I've ever known it in my life. Well, I hope that the most memorable part of this message has already come from Gail. Thank you, Gail. I appreciate that very much. I'd like to just underscore a few points in a few short minutes here about this whole theme of God and the recovering widow. And my question is, what can we learn from Naomi and Ruth? What can we learn from Gail? Um, here's the first thought. God does not abandon us when we go through loss. I don't say that to be harsh. I don't say that to uh, in any way guilt trip anybody because it may well be when you go through loss that you will feel that God has abandoned you. So sometimes it's helpful for us to, to hear this in advance that God does not abandon us at these times and your emotions may betray you in those moments. So here's an entire book of the Bible that focuses on how God blesses two widows. Naomi loses her husband first, then both of her sons. Ruth loses her husband and leaves her homeland forever to return with Naomi to Bethlehem in Israel. Please notice this if you have lost a spouse or if you find yourself suddenly single again for some other reason. There is a whole book of the Bible that lets us know that God notices these great losses in our lives. And this book of Ruth teaches us that God still has a future for us after times of loss. Early on, Naomi blames God for her situation, but God blesses her anyway. Part of her recovery process involves moving from bitterness to seeing how God provides blessings when she turns back to the Lord and she puts herself back on that pathway of following Him. And she moves from bitterness to seeing how God provides blessings through those people around her who trust in the Lord's way of doing things. Two people specifically do this for Naomi, her daughter-in-law Ruth, and then Boaz, the man who ultimately marries Ruth. Second discovery from uh, this theme of God and the recovering widow. God blesses second chance responses. Verse 6 is kind of key. In chapter 1 it says, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Ruth is a true account 
yet probably also a creatively written story. True, because it leads to historic details about the ancestors of King David, creatively written in that the names and the backgrounds all have hidden meanings. So Ruth takes place in the time of the Judges, which was a very, very turbulent time in the history of Israel. And we're told in the, in the first verses that famine had struck the land of Israel. So this family went to what we call sojourn. That's the old King James way of describing this. To sojourn in the land of Moab. It meant not just a short vacation with a plan to return home in a week, but to live there and see if maybe things were better there when for the people of Israel, God's blessing was specifically in the land that he had brought them out of slavery to possess. Israel was the place of God's blessing for Jews in that time frame. But this family went looking for greener grass when it got a bit difficult in Moab. Why was that problem? Uh, Moab was a nation that had opposed Israel, refused to let them cross their territory as they were coming out of Egypt and, and toward the land of Canaan, and it was an, a nation that had rejected the Creator God and instead worshipped their own idols. One of those idols was the God known as Chemosh, to whom they sometimes gave human sacrifices. So can you see why God didn't want his people in Moab? Now add in the names that color the story a bit. Naomi's husband was Elimelech, and Elimelech literally means, my God is king. So here's a guy whose name means, my God is king, and he takes himself out of the land of blessing. Naomi's name means my pleasant one, and the city, Bethlehem, where they lived, means house of bread. So put all this together. Uh, a man whose name means my God and king is king and proclaims that to everyone else around just by saying his name, and a woman named my pleasant one, leave the house of bread, Bethlehem, or Bethlehem in Hebrew, for greener grass in a land with a history of opposing God's people and who worship a pagan idol to whom they just sometimes casually offer human sacrifices. <laughs> Essentially, this is the story of what happens when people turn away from God's pathway to blessing and try to create their own and who end up turning back to the Lord after everything falls apart in their lives. The most wonderful part of this story is that there's not a, a great big list that condemns Naomi or Elimelech. We find these clues in the depths of the story. The story is about what happens when they return. In a sense, Ruth is a prodigal son story in the Old Testament. And Ruth and Naomi are not only widows, they are second chance people. Third discovery. God often blesses us through the faith of others. So we read these verses a moment ago from Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth takes hold of what dormant faith she had seen in Naomi. There was still something there. And she, so she says, your people will be my people, and your God, my God. This is a faith decision. This is not just a family decision. She was not only making a promise to, to Naomi, but even more to God. And Naomi is the beneficiary of Ruth's commitment. Just listen to the, the beauty of the, the, the lyrical content of what she says. Where you go, I will go. 
Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Your God will be my God. Ruth's faith carried the two of them forward. You may find yourself in a place when you are going through loss where you need somebody else's faith to carry you. You may find yourself when somebody who is your treasured friend or a family member is going through loss and it is your faith that carries them in those moments. And I think it's beautiful that the Bible provides an illustration of just a moment like that. This is an example of covenant promises that bind people together. We often hear that these verses we often hear these verses in the context of marriage and that is so wonderful. I've used these verses several times at at weddings. But please notice that these words were said between two widows, a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, not blood relatives, but who become bonded by their shared faith and these shared promises. They are the kind of promises that often transcend family commitment. This is why we come to regard some of our friends found at church as closer than family at times. It's not meant to say anything negative about family, but there is something powerful when our faith is shared, and we know that we're in this together, and we know that we're in this for life, and we know that we're in this beyond life, even into the eternal realm. It is not uncommon to find friendships like this as we grow in faith together. And last thought, God often heals our perspectives as we choose his path. In, verse, in chapter 4, the women who are friends of Naomi say to her, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, or what the older version said, a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. When we met Naomi in chapter 1, she was blaming God and she was bitter. She ignored how she and Elimelech had left the normal pathway of blessing that God had already given to his people and that their actions were essentially running away from the one protected place on earth that was there for Jewish people at that time. Ruth not only went with Naomi, but she did the hard work along the way. She went out into the fields to glean leftover grain in the harvest season. She went out even though she was a foreigner, unsure how she would be treated or welcomed. She did hard things, and she got better at doing hard things. But now Naomi's friends reveal how the Lord had never given up on her, and she can see that perspective. And they praise God for the way that he provided for Naomi as she took that first step in turning back and coming home, turning back to the altar, if you will, from this morning's language and toward his way. So here's the big idea for this morning. God leads us to recovery from great losses as we renew our trust in the Lord and in his ways. Here's how I'd like to conclude this message this morning. Kara Lawson is a young woman who played college basketball. She was well known. Uh, she became known in the Boston area recently because a year or two ago, she was the first woman ever to join the coaching staff of the Boston Celtics. Now, some people said some kind of catty things at that time. Oh, they're just being PC. They just want to add a woman to their staff. Not so. She's a tremendous coach. Today, she is the head coach of the Duke University women's basketball team. And I saw this clip about a week ago of her talking to her team, and she was urging them with this one thought, that you get better at life by learning to do hard things better. 
I'd like you to watch this clip, and then I'll close with a prayer. I, I was talking with, with Shay a couple days ago, and one of the things we talked about was um, how we all wait in life for things to get easier. Think in your own life if you waited for something to get easier. Oh, I just got to get through this, and then it'll be easy. I just got to get through preseason, and then it'll be okay. I've just got to get through my junior year of high school, and then the classes are going to get easier. I've just got to get to my spring and my senior year of college and it's going to be easier. It's what we do. We wait for stuff to get easier. It will never get easier. What happens is you handle hard better. That's what happens. Most people think that it, it's going to get easier. Life is going to get easier. Basketball is going to get easier. School's going to get easier. It never gets easier. What happens is you become someone that handles hard stuff better. So that's a mental shift that has to occur in each of your brains. It has to. Because if you go around waiting for stuff to get easier in life, it's never going to happen. And then what happens? Oh, it's so hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, this, I don't know. When, it, when is it going to be easy for me? Oh, it's easy for other people. It's not. It's hard. And the second we see you handling stuff, handling hard better, what are we going to do? We're going to make it harder. We're going to make it harder because we're preparing for you for when you leave here. Not just basketball and life. And if you think life when you leave college is gonna be all of a sudden get easy because you graduated and you got a degree, it's not gonna get easier. It's gonna get harder. So make yourself a person that handles hard well. Not someone that's waiting for the easy. Because if you have a meaningful pursuit in life, it will never be easy. If you're trying to win a championship, if you're trying to have a family, ask your parents. Do you think it was ever easy for them to raise kids? Karen, is it easy? It's not. Any meaningful pursuit in life, if you want to be successful at it, it goes, it goes to the people that handle hard well. Those are the people that get the stuff they want. People that wait around for easy, you probably see them at the bus stop. They're waiting for easy, the easy bus to come around. Easy bus never comes around. You've got to handle hard. Okay, so don't get discouraged through this time. If it's hard, don't get discouraged. It's supposed to be. And don't wait for it to be easy. Oh, I just got to get through the summer. And then it'll all of a sudden get easy in the fall. No, it won't. It won't. It won't get easy in the fall. So make yourself someone that handles hard well. And then whatever comes at you, you're going to be great. You're going to be great, okay? That is the single best leadership quote that I have heard in decades. The easy bus never comes around. God's people, as he is working in our lives, develops us into people who handle hard better. Will you say that with me? Handle hard better. Father God, thank you for the lessons that we learned from Naomi and Ruth. And from Ruth who handled hard very well, and who Naomi, who because of Ruth's faith, handled hard well. Help us to be people who have such faith in you, in the way that you provide, even in impossible, hard, difficult seasons of life, that we become people who handle hard better because of the grace of God and our faith in a God who provides for his people. 
Thank you for allowing us to be here together, to keep learning together. In Jesus' name, amen.